Welcome to Brand New Doctor with me, Rola Kerojo, doctor turned brand strategist and graphic designer for health and wellness. Each episode, I talk to an inspiring doctor or dentist who has built a successful brand and share insights with you on everything they don't teach you in medical and dental school, on how to succeed and make a lasting impact. Your success story has already begun, but life doesn't hand out pass marks. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. Good grades, social life, or enough sleep? Choose two. The idea is, you can't have it all. Your well-being and your ambition are at odds with each other. This is actually supposed to be a joke, but it really resonated with me in medical school. And the truth is, working life can feel like some version of this too. But what if we have it all wrong? What if your well-being can make you better at what you do? Like a GP slash dance teacher who shares their passion to promote well-being at work. So this very specific example is actually a real person. My guest, Dr. Nirja Joshi. Now to be really specific, it's Dr. Nirja, the GP, the dancer, the fellow at Health Education England and the co-creator of the Workwell Doctors an organisation helping to improve well-being in healthcare teams. She sounds superhuman, but she has a really relatable story. One of feeling trapped in her job and rediscovering the things that truly bring joy to her life. As she points out, her lifestyle is not for everybody. Nonetheless, she has valuable tips on how we can prioritise our time and energy so that we can improve our well-being and bring enjoyment back into our work. Let's dive right in. You have a balance between all the work you do in medicine and your passion for dance, whereas I left medicine I've done various other things and I've found fulfillment outside in the creative world. And now I'm linking that back to my medical background. So for people who are unsure of which way to go, whether they stay in their job and balance this with their passion or leave and pursue their passion full time, I think it would be helpful to hear how we both ended up where we are now and the thought processes behind it, because you and I are on opposite sides of this decision, a decision that many people struggle with. So to start with, what led you in the direction you've taken? Are there any kind of key moments that you can think of that kind of led you down the path you're on now? So that's a very interesting question. For me, I've always loved dance, but I was always pursuing sciences. So I never did it in any sort of professional capacity so I took dance only from the age of about 14 which would be considered very very late for someone who is interested in dance because it would normally start age two 
So that was the first thing that I was always more focused on science and medicine than dancing. Dancing was a hobby. And then in university, I found great outlets for dance. So we started a cheerleading squad. And from that, I took the role of choreographing routines, which ended up winning national competitions. And I thought, actually, this isn't something that I just do that's fun. It's great. It's stress relieving. It involves kind of leadership and teamwork and communication and all these things that seem really polar opposite to medicine. Dancing doesn't seem like it has anything to do with medicine, but really the skills we needed to perform as a cheerleading squad weren't too dissimilar to the skills you need to perform as a team on the ward in an emergency. So it's really great to have that experience. And I found the balance in medical school fantastic. Loved performing. It was great. And then all of a sudden you end up in foundation year. Now that for me was a real turning point because it's the first time that you're being a real life doctor. That job that you've always dreamed of is suddenly happening and you realize it's really, really tough. And the things that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, including really difficult themes like palliative care or cardiac arrests, and those are the things I personally found difficult. And you know, when you have to go and certify deaths and go to the mortuary on your lunch break, it was a very, very odd thing for a 24-year-old to be doing, really, if you think about it. And the shift pattern, it just didn't allow for any rest or respite. And I thought, well, why should it have to be one way or the other? So I took up a dance class near where I was. I, I looked through the window. They have this opportunity for you to look through the window before you do the class. I said, there's no way I could ever do that but I thought you know what one week let me just give it a go I loved it so much they decided to put on a Christmas show and I said right every how hard is it to make rehearsals with shift work as a foundation doctor but I said I don't care before nights I'll go to rehearsal and go straight to my nights it was that crazy and then it happened that the teacher of that dance class was opening up her own studio and that's where the opportunities started to arise so she said to me why don't you come and teach here at that point I decided to take an F3 and I said that's the only way I can do this on the regular and also continue doing medicine in some shape or form so I somehow managed to find a balance for the need that I had for that creative outlet and within GP training I managed to work with my practice to bring dancing into the workplace for a 10-minute dance break a day, which was great. And you wouldn't think those two worlds would collide, but it worked very well. And then in the pandemic, I worked with the RCGP to produce a YouTube video for GPs to get active because we were all working, doing telephone consultations and becoming a lot more sedentary. So it was just really nice to to see that these two, two worlds that were completely separate can be integrated and and that's kind of how how things happened but I think the the turning point for me was foundation year absolutely that was the light bulb moment for me was it just feeling that you needed to have both of those things and figure out a way to make them both work absolutely I think it's so I think the themes that we dealt with in foundation year was they were very very difficult and I think that having a creative outlet helped me to get that mental headspace because even though there are people around you, people have friends and family and colleagues, sometimes you need that white space that where nothing is happening relating to your your day job and where 
I think the thing for me is learning choreography takes up my entire brain. So I wasn't able to think about what bad day I've had before or what night shift I had coming. And that space was protected time for my brain to just not be thinking about work. And that I can't, I can't value that time enough, really. Me going to gymnastics now is like therapy for me. No matter how stressed out I am with anything, I will make the time to go to to gymnastics on a Wednesday evening. And that's like protected time. I feel amazing after the whole session. And I realized, wow, all of those things I was concerned about in that time and space, it was like they ceased to exist. Yes. Yeah. And I think that is, it's really, really important in foundation year and to have some kind of activity like that. And I think maybe we should talk about that more, actually. What is that thing that kind of helps you to completely unwind and forget about the day? Um, I don't think that Netflix is enough, but it's what we kind of default to, isn't it, when we get back home? Looking at my my journey as well for comparison, for me, the difference was feeling very much out of place, actually, in medicine. I felt that my passion for creativity, for for drawing, for for design, it felt like it it separated me. I, I'd always felt in medical school that as the years went on and it became more and more real to me that I would actually have to do the job I I realized that it wasn't something that I wanted to go through with which is it's it's ridiculous that you know you go into medical school and you you're not actually necessarily at least for me I wasn't actually thinking about the end result of actually doing the work and I think similarly to you there was a wake-up moment for me actually starting my foundation years and being in that environment it was the, in my mind it was becoming more and more real and and I realized that it wasn't something that I could do forever so yeah I, I do think that foundation is a very it's a big like wake-up call for a lot of people and and in my in my experience um I just I, I realized at the point when I would have to make a decision about actually specializing. I'd taken an F3. I could have taken more time and continued kind of locuming. But at that point, I, I just, I thought I need to make a decision and I couldn't decide on any, any specialty. I actually applied for GP. I got a place in, in London and I couldn't actually imagine myself doing the work. And that was when I decided that I, I don't have a clear plan right now as to what I'm going to do, but I just need to figure out what the next best step is. My sister, who's like a mentor to me, was like, you don't need to have everything planned out, especially if you're not going into a job or a profession where everything is laid out like it is in medicine. You don't need to know the end result right away. You just need to decide what the next best step is. And so leaving medicine was that for me. And I just decided I'll take a bit of time to work in France as a language assistant because I could be paid. I could work on my French, which I'd been learning for a few years before that. And it would just give me some time and space. And so that was the next best step. And, and going from there, that was when I got a job in a tech company as a project manager. And then from there, I, you know, I worked with my sister who owns a dental practice. I was the business manager. And it was at that point that I, I realized that actually creativity and, and the healthcare industry 
can actually go hand in hand because I would have to come up with, you know, interesting visuals and think about our branding. And I, I really realized then that there is so much interplay between those two things. So it's, it's, it's just interesting talking to you because you also saw that there was that interesting combination too between dance and, and, and healthcare. How did you decide to do that? Did it ever seem kind of silly to you? Oh, absolutely. I I don't think there was definitely never a description for a doctor who's also a dancer. That was never in the career pathway and never something that you got guidance on. That there was a moment for me actually, because my dancing and doctoring was completely separate until probably end of GP no no, actually GPST one to first year of GP training. And it was when my classes that I was teaching were on a Sunday. So I would go to the studio on a Sunday and the the group of people that happened to come would all tend to be professional women, generally. They would come in and they would be miserable from their weeks that have gone. They're upset that it's going to be Monday tomorrow. And they just, you know, they weren't in a great space. And by the end of that 45 minutes, one hour, everyone was beaming ear to ear so happy and it would it just completely turned around everyone's mood and mentality and then I would attend GP practice on a Monday morning and you see the same sad looks and I just thought do you know what why is there that was exactly what happened is I saw that same problem on the next day and I thought if I bring the same solution in would it lead to the same outcome And I'll be honest with you, the first time it didn't really work. So I tried it in my first practice in ST1, but the uptake wasn't great. But I've spoken to the practice manager recently and she said, we loved the idea so much. And it was because of the group of staff at the time. But she said, now we have a YouTube video and we put it on the projector in the waiting room whilst patients have gone at lunchtime and we do our 10 minutes. So somehow there's a legacy and you might think that it required me as a catalyst or an ingredient to that process, but they've shown that actually it showed a demand for something that was necessary to improve people's physical and mental health, particularly on a Monday in GP. That's amazing. I love that. You know, you wear many hats as well as being a GP. You are a fellow in the health in health education England. You are co-creator of Workworld Doctors, which is teaching people, teaching healthcare professionals well-being strategies as well as being a dance instructor so you are living proof that there are so many directions you can take a medical career in why do you think so many people feel stuck in their jobs that they have to do something that they don't really want to well I remember there was a moment that I had some coaching and I also felt trapped and it's not to say that I felt trapped because I didn't like the work that I was doing I felt like I didn't have options and then the coach said to me she said well you you have hundreds of options she said if this was a friend in this situation what would you suggest to them and that they could stay in their job they could add another job they could try doing something at the weekends they can try working from home a bit they can work flexibly you know there, there are lots and lots of options of what you can do and knowing that you have those options and opportunities has led me to be able to create a week that I'm really happy with that's really balanced for me and 
And I just also wanted to just put in a caveat that this isn't for everyone. You know, being employed in multiple different roles, being self-employed, creating a startup, you know, organization is not, it's, it's not for everyone. And I feel like there's also a pressure for the hustle culture that you've got to continue to be doing things and doing things. It works for me and it works really well for me and it allows me to be a better doctor, all of these other things. And I appreciate that, but I don't want anyone to hear this and feel the pressure that, you know, this person's doing this many things. So I should also be doing that because you don't have to, if you're content in what you're doing, then that's great. And if you feel like you want to add something or change something, that's also an option. So just to know there's options in whatever you choose to do. I think realizing that you do have options is a big is a big part of it. I I remember for me again looking at the opposite side, someone who's chosen to leave. For me in foundation my foundation years whenever I'd have a really bad shift, I would I would just go on Guardian Jobs on the website and I'd look at the graduate schemes they had there and I would just think, okay, I can if I wanted to, I could leave and I could just apply for a job and then I would think okay but I'm actually choosing to be here this is my decision to stay here because I could leave at any point and that was oftentimes enough to to kind of soothe me in those moments because I would would just think okay this is I'm not trapped here it's not by force I'm deciding to to make this decision and just having that sense of agency for me was was really important to know that I could leave if I wanted to so I'm curious about the the method you had for prioritizing your time between your passions and work. I think you told me about a pie chart that you created oh, yeah. on the train journey. That's very true. Yeah. So there was one day where I was on the way to a conference with a good friend of mine and I was really struggling to know which jobs were actually necessary because when you have so many roles you think actually do I need to be doing this much what is it bringing to the table so I drew out a table and then a pie chart and I rated each job in terms of financial gain because I mean at the end of the day we think why do we go to work is it for money is it for joy is it for satisfaction and then the amount of stress that it was causing me and the amount of joy that it was bringing in and something for dance for example financial gain is minimal to zero but the joy was 10 and the stress was zero. And you think that that is something that needs to form part of that pie chart to allow the other things to work. So being a GP is always going to be probably the most financially beneficial job to have on any pie chart generally. And that's okay. But it's just knowing that you're able to balance those things with things that might not be as lucrative but are lucrative in other ways in how they feed your joy and reduce your stress for sure yeah yeah that is a, that's a really good point to make that there are different types of value that something can bring to you and financial financial gain isn't the only the only thing that we should consider when we decide how we spend our time so you know coming back full circle how do you think going off the kind of beaten path and, and dividing up your time in, in various ways has kind of changed the way that you work as a GP day to day? So 
I only do the other things because I feel like it makes me a better GP for my patients. Honestly, I feel I'm so much less stressed, more able to listen and take on other people's issues because that is what you're doing in GP day in and day out. And if your job is to speak to 45 patients in a day, that's 45 problems that you're taking on to yourself. And if you don't have that outlet or that creative space or space for you to use your brain in a different way it's very very difficult for you to give your best to those people and you know some of the things that I'm doing is trying to influence the healthcare system on a on a bigger scale or a different scale and I'm not saying things at kind of the highest level but for example with Workwell if we can do a webinar and improve the well-being of 10 people even by 10% in that that will mean that those healthcare professionals can give more to their patients and and it's just nice that you're able to have that kind of ripple effect impact and share tips and make someone stay that little bit better so yeah I think it is all really connected and and for me the other things make the main job better and more fulfilling and more interesting I come home and and I say isn't it great I just saw this this diagnosis today and you're thinking and enjoying medicine and that can be really really tough if if you're in it day in and day out without any respite yeah we don't really compartmentalize our lives as much as we think that we do that that there's a work you and there's a like a a home you but actually they are very very interconnected aren't they and what you have at work carries over into your home life and vice versa so if you can find happiness in both of those areas it 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 holistically improves your life doesn't it and how you function in all of those areas right absolutely and I mean you touched on a really good point there and I think majority of people who are listening to this that are in the healthcare profession if they're asked who are you or what are you they'll say I'm a doctor but it's not what you are it's something that you do so it's interesting that it's one of the few areas of life where it becomes you and you become it so even if you're and that's that's the funny thing is that even if I'm at a dance class I'm very aware that if someone collapses and falls on the floor it's still going to be my duty to look after that person so there isn't an there isn't a complete off switch there can never be and that's I think that's a real pressure for people in the profession so they've got to think about how to mitigate that best for themselves to create that kind of distance when they can I think you and I are on the same wavelength because I was going to ask you something about this as well because I find it really interesting Um, how people introduce themselves you know we always give our job title as if it's the most important thing about you that defines you and um, I think when you found the right job then um, what we what we do is actually more a result of a belief that we have about ourselves or the world or a purpose. But um, you know, now I'm I'm a graphic designer and, uh, and a, a brand strategist, and I'm very happy to say that because, in a larger sense, I think of myself as a creator. So I love bringing things to life, ideas to life, and using that to improve things. And you know, it brings me fulfillment to to be able to to see and hold the the work that I've I've done and so I I wonder how is it that you describe yourself and what do you think is the greater meaning or purpose behind that so 
I'm still not great at this because I will introduce myself as a doctor. And then I I end up then caveating that with saying, but I do wear many hats. And But if you start to describe to everyone that you meet every single thing that you do, it's realizing that that's where you're placing value as well on your jobs. And actually, it's not really who you are. I'm still not great at it, but there is a great example in Nordic countries. They they don't say, what do you do? They say, what do you love doing? And, and that's just switching that whole narrative about identity and career. And I think we need to do more of that. So maybe next time you meet someone, instead of saying, you know, what do you do? Just say, well, what do you love doing? And, you know, if they're lucky, maybe it is their job. <laughs> that's a great question, actually. I love that. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about Workwell Doctors. I think it sounds like this incredible idea that you've had and such an important and needed thing, particularly in the last couple of years to help people with their well-being. Can you tell me a little bit more about the core of what you teach at Workwell Doctors? Yes, of course. So Workwell was started by myself and another GP, Dr. Alex Lai, and we actually met in foundation training. He was the he was the year above me. He was the outgoing kind of year lead, and I was the incoming year lead. And so we had a bit of contact then, and then we happened to re meet during GP training, and we had moments, particularly in A and E, where we just thought, why are things like this? You know, why is it like this? Why does everyone feel this way? And it it wasn't it wasn't a nice thing to see or observe, but we identified a problem, and this was prior to the pandemic that you know well being within healthcare practitioners needed to change. So this was all come kind of coming to fruition end of 2019, and we were due to launch in March 2020, at the exactly the right time. So what happened is we started off giving what we called safe spaces. So right at the inception of the pandemic, just talking to people and kind of debriefing essentially to see what the problems were on the ground and giving people that space to talk about those things that they were seeing. Now things have evolved a lot more. We do webinars and workshops. We do essentially a six-part teaching we have eight p's of well-being and i won't go through them all now but essentially the things that we think about are trying to create passion and purpose in your workplace as well as looking at things like physical activity nutrition in the workplace we don't realize how much time of our of our living lives that we spend at work so we don't think about the fact that the nutrition that we have at work whether your culture at work is fish and chips friday or let's all have bringing bringing in a piece of fruit and making a fruit salad that will have an impact on your overall health and how you're feeling so we we discuss things which can be really quite gritty in the NHS but work culture in a in a GP practice or a hospital and actually finding out what are the things that make that up and how can you change it from the ground up because you know an example being bringing Zimbra into the workplace that wasn't a pre- written thing and I was bottom of the ladder in the hierarchy to bring in that change but it does change the culture and so it's just kind of to empower people to think about practical ways that they can make their working life that little bit better to help to really enjoy and get passion from work again. I think in my mind it's it's through habits that we can sustain a change in our lives and that applies to well-being as well mental well-being as well that that we can 
create habits that that help us in the long run with our mental well-being there are lots of books and methods youtube videos everything out there that have helped a lot of people with this so i'm curious if you if you would agree and and if so what do you think are the top habits that you would recommend for someone to cultivate their mental well-being so habit forming i would completely agree is at the cornerstone of kind of making these well-being changes the top changes that I would suggest, and I'll, I'll purely talk about my experience in GP recently and things that I m- made active changes for. Number one was doing mindfulness before an on- on-call day. So as the computer's switching on, before you're about to start that, you know, 10, 11 hour day, which you know is going to be difficult, just doing those few minutes of mindfulness because it doesn't take time away from any anyone else or anything else, but it puts you in a better frame of mind. Second thing is making sure you get out for lunch. So when you're stuck on an on-call in general practice, it can feel like you're really chained to your desk, but you don't have to be. So I made sure that I got away from my desk and I didn't bring lunch. And I know this is going to sound odd for a well-being habit, but I didn't bring lunch. So I had to leave the building to get lunch. So it meant I got time away and if possible with a colleague. So that was a great habit. And the last thing that I managed to introduce was um, having a standing desk. So because with telephone consultations, we've been sitting so frequently, um, just having that ability to stand up and do prescriptions or lab reports just makes all that difference because you're spending all your time at work. So any minutes that you can cultivate standing rather than sitting will be beneficial to overall health. And it actually improves focus and concentration, which is great. Yeah, those are some 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 great tips, I think. And for me as a graphic designer, I'm sitting at my desk a lot of the time as well. And so it's funny, that's still, you know, very applicable to me now. And yeah, I'm sure that people could be, you know, apply this in hospital as well. Maybe they don't leave hospital, but they can they can at least go to the canteen, for example, or yeah, yeah and, and spend... Leave the ward environment. Yeah, leave the ward. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, on your website, on the Workwell Doctors website, I saw that there are lots and lots of resources out there for people who are struggling with their mental well-being or people who are wanting to improve that. But what do you think are the biggest barriers to people accessing help and talking about their concerns? So there has been historically a lot of stigma around mental health and that can vary between professions and communities as well so people's backgrounds and family setup might prevent them from seeking help but also the profession which you're in can make it very difficult so some people in certain specialties might find it a lot harder like surgeons for example might be expected to never experience a mental health problem it might have more of a stigma for them to seek mental health support than it might do for for example a GP um, where people might talk about these things more openly but that's that that is an overarching stereotype that these things do still exist it might be worth me just mentioning for any healthcare professionals NHS staff out there that I volunteer for a charity called duty to care and they actually provide mental health support for NHS staff so another barrier is time so being referred on the NHS for support can take a lot of time and that can be a barrier so if you're having a a difficult time now you finally manage to accept that you need help and then someone tells you there's a six or eight month wait list until you speak to someone 
that's huge. So there's a lovely lady called Harriet Hunt, who is the wife of an anaesthetist. And she realized this issue. And she said, well, we were in the position to be able to afford private therapy, but most NHS staff wouldn't be. So let's try and provide this for NHS staff. So it's amazing. Now, if you have an NHS.net email address, you can go to the website and you can pick from a variety of well-being practitioners. So everything from CBT, psychotherapy, to things like yoga, mindfulness, meditation, personal training, nutrition, things that will be valuable to the individual for seeking that kind of help that they need. And that that's free of charge for anyone in the NHS. Wow, that's an, that's an incredible resource more people should know about. How can we support that? Yeah, so Duty to Care is always looking for anyone that's able to fundraise for them. Mm. So you can please get in touch with Duty to Care directly via the website and they can help you to create some sort of fundraising in your local area for anyone that wants to support the mental health of NHS staff. I did it through a Just a Just Giving page and managed to raise over £500 just amongst family and friends without too much kind of effort but I know some people have done things like charity runs etc bake sales things that can help to raise money for the charity and that would be really really appreciated if anyone's able to do that yeah that sounds incredible I'll definitely link the the all of the the details in the the show notes as well amazing thank you yeah no worries so you are a very enterprising individual you're a very extracurricular person you've created a lot of opportunities for yourself and I know it can be easier to to just wait for opportunities to come to you and there are you know many out there I think a lot of people have ideas a lot of people have ideas that are outside of the box but the very first barrier to executing them is deciding whether or not they are worthwhile. So I wonder, how is it that you decide whether to pursue an idea or an opportunity that you come across? And what do you think is actually key to to making that happen? So if I'm completely honest, I would say my family. They are the soundboard for me. So I have ideas every minute of every day my brain is thinking right what if I could solve this problem what if I could set this up and my family will be real advocates for me if it's if they think it's going to work but also help me to realize as realize the challenges that I might not have anticipated so they help me to think of a more kind of well-rounded view and then they say right okay this is something you can go for and and even after that process I will still have my own kind of subsequent decision making as to whether it it should go ahead or not. But I I want your listeners to be really aware that everything is trial and error, absolutely everything. So currently, I run a dance class online at the moment, and I run it every week, depending on when I'm free, and I let people know 24 hours in advance. It's not a business model. It is not a business model, but it works. And it was trial and error of knowing actually, do people want to commit to the same time every week for six weeks? Do they want to pay for a terms fee? Or do we just kind of roll with the punches? And and actually, this is what works for now. With Workwell, we had so many learning curves and things didn't work straight away. People have a really negative view of well-being in the NHS when it's been given to you as a 
mandatory workshop by your employer and people go right okay this is a tick box exercise my employer needs to say I've done something for your well-being so these people have come they're just saying their piece and that's it and we learn a lot from that about our approach to what we do the difference with us is that we still work in the NHS so people have that little bit of relatability of okay these people aren't looking from a wide angle view of the world where there's rainbows and butterflies everywhere we appreciate that we might give people 10 tips they might be able to take on one and that's okay but yeah a lot of trial and error a lot of feedback gathering and then being flexible that that's kind of how my decision making model has has gone so far and it works for me thus far so I'm letting it letting it carry on for the moment you you call it trial and error and I think I think that is a good way to to talk about it because we we think of things not working out as failure a lot of the time yeah and I think that's quite a quite a big word but but if we were to use that word I don't think we do talk enough about failure because you know when we see people who are succeeding we tend to get a, a skewed image of that because we're not seeing all of the setbacks and when things have fallen through and when they've had to start again and so when we try things and they don't work out we have a, a skewed image again we think that we're the failure and that we we don't actually appreciate that failure is an inevitable part of the journey to succeeding so i guess for balance are there any opportunities that you've you've had or you've taken or created that just didn't work out and how did you process that and not get discouraged so I think an easy one to, that comes straight to mind is is with dance. So with dance, it doesn't just happen, a dance class. It takes a lot of preparation to think of a song, choreography, practice it, make sure you know the counts and, and all of that. And then a number of times, not just once, I would turn up to a class and no one would be there. So I would be there and there'd be an empty room and you think, right, okay. And sometimes there would be one or two people sometimes there'd be 20 and the difficulty is is distancing yourself from that moment that the fact that you've put in all of this preparation and no one's shown up so you've driven to the venue you're there you're waiting you're ready and it's an empty room but then if there's one or two people some people have said to me I'm so sorry it wasn't busy today and I think no actually I've just got to influence two people's lives that was great. That's a privilege. Very happy with that. When no one's shown up, my dad actually said the words to me, I think you should just give up now. And he never says that. He's never discouraging, but he was like, look, you put in all these hours, you go there, there's no one there. And I said, no, it's fine. You know, you just got to keep pushing. It's not, it's all process, isn't it? Not, not about kind of the outcome. With Workwell, we once put on an event that that no one attended and that can be really difficult because if you do that and you put in time for marketing and it feels like wasted hours but it is just and I hate I I hate to use the word failure because I think in the UK especially we have a, a very all or nothing mindset things either succeed or they fail and I just don't I I've tried my best to just stay out of that mindset because in medical school you either pass or fail and and that's a very kind of dichotomous place to be and you don't want to 
kind of pigeonhole yourself. And and at the end of the day, I mean, I got to do some amazing things with dance. There was one very odd situation where I met someone from Instagram and she loved my dance. She came to London. We filmed it together. And then she invited me to Texas and I taught like her class of 200 people a Bollywood dance in Texas. Incredible. It's fine that no one turned up to my dance class. Mm -hmm. That's okay because it's all led to that moment where good things will happen. It's not just one way or the other. It never is. I think you're you're so right. It's actually about persistence and just increasing the amount of opportunities for things to go right by persisting actually yeah I've definitely taken that approach with this podcast as well because Um, I know that podcasts take time to grow so I was never expecting like crazy amounts like crazy responses at the beginning and I'm just you know keeping going with it because for one thing I I just actually really enjoy it as well (laughs) and I I I don't think that that we should discount our enjoyment from something as a reason like to to not do something like that. that counts definitely if you enjoy it that's reason enough to keep going I think you've been an incredible guest and you have very astute answers to every question that I give you I love to ask everybody who comes on the the podcast to imagine that they are the dean of the medical school that they went to so you went to St George's so just imagine that you are the dean of the medical school and you have the power to influence the medical curriculum and make any changes that you want what is it that you think that people are needing to learn in medical school to improve their lives or to prepare them for life and for work this can be relating to well-being or anything what what would you want to change so I was actually going to suggest well-being and there's there's a reason for it so after working with the charity duty to care it became very obvious to me that a lot of my friends and colleagues had to use the support and I think that that is because we are not trained from an early age to deal with the difficulties of the reality of life as a doctor and so actually like it or not F1, F2 training when you become a consultant at some point that mental health struggle will hit and it's unfortunate, but it's true. And and if we know it's more of an eventuality and predictable and we equip people with the right tools and thinking about their well-being and it's not about, you know, really trying to create this amazing doctor that's fantastic at, at everything. It's about knowing things like when to step back, when to step away, when to notice that a colleague is in difficulty, you know, where to seek mental health support when you're going through a tough time or you know we've seen people who've had horrendous bereavements and they come straight into work the next day because of short staffing and you think actually we need someone to take some time out who is caring for the carers and that's what I would I would add in to the medical school curriculum if I had the chance. Yeah yeah I think that is a really really important one and I think also you know, what you said earlier about how dance for you was like therapy, maybe helping people to to find or to figure out what it is that helps them to completely unwind from their job. I think that that those those things are are essential and we are not we're not necessarily spending so much time on that apart from 
I think some Oskis, there were some Oski stations or something that we did about talking to a colleague, but it felt very, it felt like it was a a test rather than actually something that we would need to use in real life. But now you're giving me an idea. I might just write to the Dean of St. George's right now. Yeah. (laughs) I know this was just a question. I was like, well, that's a great idea though. Of course we should. Why stop there? The whole London Medical School group all right well I've got some homework to do after this now (laughs) I love that you're a very very active person proactive person so I guess I I just want to finish by asking you you know what are you working on at the moment that you are really excited about do you have any kind of upcoming projects or is there anything in your life that you're just grateful to to have yeah so I mean there's a couple of things that I can't disclose I never wanted to be that person that can say that but it's because it's all to do with kind of funding so I can't talk about it yet but good good projects coming up in terms of kind of the environment in primary care which is which is coming up which is great Um, if it it comes to fruition and I'm doing some great work which is a new role that I've taken on with the food medic who is quite big on Instagram she's a doctor and a nutritionist and and so much more and she's just written her third book and she's taken me on as a as a medical writer for her website and that's just like it's it's just it's so great because I love writing and it gets me to think about what is important to patients and you know we were talking about having that influence on one-on-one versus having the influence on many so if I can write an article about something that people are coming into general practice about every day that you know more people might read it might just get the message out a little bit further because it's got a lot more reach than I do as an individual which is great yeah exactly it lives on like you were saying about having a legacy yes absolutely yeah Yeah, incredible thank you so much you have been a fantastic guest and yeah I'm really excited to see what you're working on later on this year thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor. Neerja was such a wise and articulate guest, so I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you don't already, you can follow Neerja on Instagram at doctor underscore dancing, and you can also follow the link in the show notes to learn more about the Workwell Doctors and access many useful resources which can help to support your well-being if you are working in healthcare. If you enjoyed this, don't forget to subscribe and share the episode. And I really appreciate your feedback, so please leave a rating and review. It helps other people to discover the podcast as well. And you can also follow me on Instagram at rollacare.so. That's R-O-L-A-K-E dot S-O. You can message me or DM me. I would love to hear from you. And I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor. Mm-hmm.